Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This man would kill you in a heartbeat and, sit and eat a steak in front of you laying there dead, dying, I mean, bleeding. This, this is how cold-hearted this man is. He had all kind of enemies. If anybody would have killed him. I felt that we, Sheriff's Office particularly, had zeroed in on the correct suspect. He called me crying and he said, baby, how did they do this to me? How did, how did this happen? I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome to Season 4 of the award-winning podcast, Murder on the Space Coast, Where Justice Lies. If you have not listened to our previous seasons, I encourage you to do so now. First, a warning. As our story unfolds, you may feel like you've settled in for a Quentin Tarantino film. And that would be a normal reaction, because you see, the story you're about to hear is not only seedy, it's surreal and absurd at times. This is a story populated with drug addicts and drug peddlers. It's a tale of bad choices and their tragic consequences. There's a road trip from hell, a unique jeweled necklace, a lawyer suffering from mental illness, and a jailhouse informant who fears for his life. And did I mention the drugs? But most of all, this is a story about lies. Lots and lots of lies. It's actually hard to discern the truth sometimes because literally everyone lies. Everyone. Are you ready? A quick listener note. The story that you're about to hear contains adult content and language. It's not suitable for kids. The series is called Murder on the Space Coast, and that's exactly where we'll start. Well, really, about 40 minutes before anyone knows a murder has been committed. It's 8.46 Monday morning, May 20th, 2002. And the temperature in Melbourne, Florida was a comfortable 74 degrees on its way to a high of only 80. The sun had been up for 2 hours and 15 minutes and there was not a drop of rain in sight. Our story starts in a trailer park named Mobile Land by the Sea. Though this trailer park was actually closer to the Intracoastal Waterway, the Indian River to be exact, than any sea or ocean. Still, the park, inhabited by retirees and members of the Blue Collar Workforce, was clean, neat, and only a 10-minute drive over the Pineda Causeway to the beaches of the Atlantic Ocean. Mobile Land by the Sea is located on US-1, just south of the tiny town of Palm Shores. It is, for the most part, smack dab in the middle of a quiet stretch of central Florida, with not many businesses around except for the occasional used car lot. Now back to our murder, or rather, 40 minutes before our murder was discovered, when Ernest David asked his wife, Valeria, to borrow a shovel from their neighbor, a retiree by the name of Courtney Crandall, whom they'd just purchased their trailer from. Everyone knows Courtney as Dick. Dick had moved one block over to another trailer, although by the state of things inside his trailer, moved might be a little premature. 
he was clearly still in the process of moving and settling in. Valeria knocked lightly. No answer. So she figured Dick was still sleeping. She would come back later. Valeria, a native of Hungary, who was only a few weeks from turning 57 years old, returned in 20 minutes, and this time she knocked louder. And I, yes, hello, hello, anybody home? Nobody answered, and, uh, but I was there maybe a minute, and I came home. Before she left, though, Valeria says that she gathered Dick's Sunday and Monday newspapers from his lawn and placed them by his screen door. She goes home and then returns a third time. She knocks. But when a third time I went back, I said, something is not right because I heard, as soon as I get to the front door, I heard a banging again. I said, that is not so windy, what's going on? So then I went up the stairs, and I, that's the time I touched the screen door, opened it, and I saw the front door was open. So I pushed it in, and I heard the TV. And I want to yell in, Dick. Hello, anybody home? But I didn't because my eyes went down to the floor and that's what I saw. And right there, I don't even know how I left the stairs or whatever, because right there, I started screaming. Valeria bolted from his trailer and ran home, yelling at her husband to call 911. Dick was lying on the floor of his living room. She didn't know whether Dick was alive or dead. Valeria had fled so fast, she did not take notice of how savagely her neighbor had been beaten. She'd only seen the blood and Dick on the floor. And when I say savagely beaten, I mean it. There was a hole atop Dick's head where brain matter was visible. His eyes were blackened with blood and his nose was pushed up in a grotesque way. There were fractures to Dick's face and his dentures were cracked in half on the floor. There were multiple and sometimes deep lacerations all over Dick's head. Some were round and some were V-shaped. There were also marks on his neck and signs of internal hemorrhaging as if he had been strangled. There were defensive wounds on the old man's forearms. The wounds suggested he tried and failed to fight for his life. He was dead, brutally killed at 78 years old. Littered all around Dick's head were fragments from a broken clothing iron. A hammer was on the floor right above his head. Police would later determine that these were the murder weapons, an iron and a hammer. A claw hammer, objects that would presumably inflict round and V-shaped injuries. It was unlucky that no prints were found on either item. As an aside, the killing became known as the claw hammer killing. I covered part of this case which at the time seemed pretty unremarkable other than the violence of the beating. Let me help you really picture this. So Dick is lying on his back. His right arm is raised above his head and bent at the elbow. His left hand was clenched near his heart. He's shirtless, wearing shorts, a belt, and a pair of white socks. He had on a watch, a bracelet, and a ring. Blood was splattered all around. The temperature inside at Dick Crandall's trailer was 82 degrees. As I'd mentioned before, Dick had just moved into the trailer and clearly hadn't finished unpacking. Boxes were scattered. On the countertop nearby were a pair of glasses that appeared to have been twisted or mangled. There were various pill bottles as well. In Dick's pockets, homicide agents recovered $70 in cash, two loose 40-milligram Oxycontin pills, and a prescription bottle that contained 90 40-milligram Oxycontins. On a small wooden coffee table nearby were several small white folded towels and several sets of keys. On the other side of the room was a blue cooler and a box that contained things like 
casserole dishes and a large container of Morton salt. There wasn't an inch of empty space on the kitchen countertop. It was loaded with cans of food that needed to be put away and several boxes of Honey Nut Cheerios. That was the scene that Valeria David walked into that Monday morning and that homicide investigators soon arrived at. But who could have wanted Dick Crandall dead? Who could have inflicted such a terrible beating? After all, as Valeria David told a Brevard County Sheriff's agent, he was the sweetest man you could ever find on earth. Well, maybe not everyone thought Dick was so sweet, but we'll get to that. Let's start with the crime scene. As I mentioned earlier, the temperature inside the home was 82 degrees. The first officer on the scene notified his supervisor and secured the trailer. Homicide agents arrived shortly thereafter at 9.50 a.m., and then asked the courts to issue a search warrant that would allow them to seize evidence from the dead man's home. It took four hours to get the warrant. Yeah, I was confused as well that it took so long, but this is normal. See, once officers make sure there are no other victims or suspects on the scene, they then prevent anyone else from entering the home and obtain a search warrant. They are not allowed to look through things that are not in plain sight otherwise. The usual processing of a crime scene takes place. The carpet is vacuumed and the contents are sealed. Swabs are taken of bloodstains, and photographs of blood splatter are snapped. At 8.50 p.m., 12 hours since first being discovered, Dick's battered and broken body is put into a bag and transported to the medical examiner's office. Now, here's what the medical examiner eventually had to say about the murder. Yes, because we see injuries on the right side, on the front, and on the left side. And he was, you know, at least... You get that? The ME said Dick's injuries were on the right side of his head, the left side of his head, and the front of his head. He also says everybody was moving at the same time. It was violent, terribly violent. Dick Crandall was savagely beaten, but it really doesn't look like a straight-up robbery. I mean, he's found with drugs and money in his pockets. So the cops start asking questions, trying to piece things together. It's a whodunit. Who brutally beat a 78-year-old man to death? That's the question cops began asking of Dick's neighbors, acquaintances, and close friends. It doesn't take long before they learn a lot about Dick and the unsavory characters he associated with. A few names blipped on the police radar almost from the start. One of them was a 40-year-old junkie by the name of Jeffrey Charles Abramowski. Jeff, hooked on the opioid painkiller Oxycontin, sometimes known as hillbilly heroin, had lost his job, his wife and family, and was living with a fairly new friend, Daryl Stitely. Now everyone knew Stitely as Bubba, and it just wouldn't feel right telling a story like this without someone named Bubba. Here is Bubba telling police about Jeff's drug issues. Jeff is a full blue pill, yes. What kind of pills is Jeff? Oxycontin. You want to know how I know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I stole his fucking bills from him. <laughs> I couldn't get him to stop. So when he's passed out on the couch, I was trying to look at old Bob. Took him in the house. See you later. Smile and leave. But he's like, man, so much going on. So this is the point of the story when you ask, what's the connection between a drug addict named Jeff, who was crashing on a friend's couch, and the murder victim, Dick Crandall? Well, according to a mutual friend, Donald Hughes, Jeff did some odd jobs for the old timer. I think he worked for Dick. I think he did some work for Dick. Mm-hmm. You know, Dick would buy, he was like a uh, pack rack. He would, 
he would buy, you guys got must see all his property. He's got like yeah. old boats, old cars, and stuff I would never consider purchasing, and you may never consider. But he would buy junk. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm talking about scrappy cars, boats, and try to sell them at a profit. I, I, I remember once him telling me he bought, tried to flop, corner the flower market. I'm like, what do you mean the flower? Well, he bought all the, all the roses uh, in, in the Cumberland Farms and all the places. And I'm like, well, that's a little weird. So you carry money and spend money like that, you know. But I, I still, uh, you know, that's, I, I still think this is awful to happen to this guy. I, I don't think he deserved that, you know. No way. Okay, we're going to take a very short break to introduce you to a couple of other USA Today network podcasts that we're excited about. Then after the break, we learn a little bit more about our victim in this case. A dead district attorney. A dead barber. A drug-addicted judge. A businessman hiding, armed and scared. One woman, one name, binds them all. Raynella. The fabric of her life is woven with tragedy and violence, politics and pain, and even now, suspense. Come meet her on Season 1 of Suspicion, available on just about every major podcast platform. They were teens, locked away for life for murder. But now they're getting a second chance. Uncertain Terms, a new podcast from T.C. Palm, explains why judges are re-sentencing youthful offenders, why families are having to relive the painful murders, why some killers are being set free. Look for it on tcpalm.com or your favorite podcast app. Okay, we're back. A man is dead and police are following leads. As homicide agents interview more neighbors and associates of Dick, a more complete picture of Dick Courtney Crandall emerges, and I'm sure it's not quite what you've imagined. And I can't help but to think about one of my favorite lines from the S-Town podcast that seems appropriate here. Low-down, dirty shit happens when you hang out with low-down, dirty people. Dick Crandall was an Indiana native and a U.S. Army veteran who made his living selling auto parts during his younger years. He supplemented his retirement by buying trailers, refurbishing and reselling them. But that wasn't the only thing he bought and sold. Dick also sold the opioid painkiller... Oxycontin. That's right. Dick Crandall was a 78-year-old drug dealer, and investigators soon learned that he took guys like Abramowski doctor shopping for prescriptions. Dick would pay for the doctor visits and the pills and give his drug shoppers some of the pills as payment. Now here are Brevard County homicide agents Allie Roberts and Gary Harrell asking Jeff about his arrangement with Dick. They tell him they don't investigate drugs and are asking these questions about Jeff's drug relationship with Dick, just to see how honest Jeff is being. Let me, let me ask you something. The reason I'm asking is that's when see how honest you are, okay? Mm-hmm. I want you to be honest. Sure. We don't investigate drugs. Yeah. That's not our thing, I really don't care. But during our investigation, we talked to several different people, mm-hmm. okay? And they told us, basically, that you would get the scripts for the Oxy, mm-hmm. and Dick would buy them from you, you would get Dixon and Dick himself. Well, you know, I don't care. Well, I just want to see, but, you know. Yeah, once in a while, you know, he would sit there and say, well, you know, you're into me this much money and everything. Just give me a couple of your oxys and I would. Well, I mean, it's more than that. My understanding, more, it's more like 
he gives you the money for the scripts, then you give him the scripts, and he take them out and sell them, make a profit. Well, I don't know what he was doing with them, but sometimes I would give him some, yeah. Well, we hear from talking to a lot of people that he was selling more than just a few, that he was selling a lot. Well, they weren't coming from me because I had a bad, if, if you've ever talked to anybody that knew me, they would tell you that I had a pretty bad habit with them, so I didn't really want to give many of those things away. So, as you just heard, Jeff denies involvement in the drug operation, but way too many people are telling investigators about it. Agents also soon learn of a bizarre incident from Jeff himself, and confirmed by others in which Dick supposedly ditches Jeff in Orlando after taking his prescription, forcing Jeff to walk and hitchhike back to Melbourne, a trip of about 60 miles. The incident, depending on who you believe, happened months or just weeks before Dick's death. Could that humiliation anger Jeff enough to kill? Jeff says no. Yeah, Dick had a unique personality. He would sit there and uh, belittle a lot of people. Have you ever had any fights with, with Dick? No. He, although, we talked about another incident. Where he, he left me in Orlando one time. Yeah. Did, did you two fight that day or no. fight over that? Or no. That's what really surprised me is when I, I put my medications in the, in the car and he drove off. He tried to run me down. It, you know, I, I went to the back of the car and uh, I was coming around the car and, and he backed up and he, he hit me in the hip and I kind of went to the side and he, he goes, mm -hmm, and drove off. And you ended up hitching a ride home that day? Yeah. But when you got back, you didn't go looking for him? No, him up or I just went home. Okay. How long before... Uh, I kind of figured, figured we were even because I kind of owed him a couple dollars for him getting my truck out of the impound parking lot, so I just said... Yes, Jeff owed Dick some money. But Jeff insisted he'd never hurt Dick, and said he was nowhere near the mobile land by the sea trailer park that weekend that Dick was murdered. Jeff gave police a rundown of his whereabouts that weekend from Friday morning through Sunday night and who he was with. He also gave them DNA samples. But soon, there were cracks in his story. His alibi for Saturday, Chris Vasquez, whom Jeff claimed to be at an Orlando mall with all day Saturday, told agents that wasn't true. In fact, in a damning statement, Chris said that he'd actually dropped Jeff off at Dick's trailer park Saturday morning. That was in fact corroborated by the woman who found Dick's body, Valeria David. She told police that she remembered seeing Jeff and Dick together around noon Saturday in front of Dick's trailer. I'd be surprised because, like I say, I, I wasn't there and I don't know nothing about that. Well, the thing, the, the problems we have and the reason why we need to talk to you again we talked to Chris. Mm -hmm. Okay. Chris said he did go to the mall. We didn't go to the mall. Well, he says not that. He says Saturday morning and he dropped you off Saturday morning at the interest in trail park. Chris. Saturday morning? I don't think so. He says you went to the mall on Sunday. Sunday? No, we went Saturday. Okay. Do you remember Detective Harold driving you to the trailer park when he talked to you? Yeah. You got out of the car? Mm -hmm. There's another car sitting there? Yeah. There was a lady in that car. Uh -huh. Okay. She identified you as being at Dick's trailer Saturday. She came there, you were sitting on the doorstep talking with Dick. And she even spoke to you. No. Remember the time when she told me? Well, I don't know why she'd say that. Those are, those are the two issues because that was two days later when you're in my car. Remember we went there and you showed me where Dick lived? Yeah. And you got out, you remember that? Yeah. And you got out, this on a Wednesday. That woman saw you there on Saturday and she spoke to you. And she's sure, she's, I mean, she's, she, she's absolutely She started crying. Sure. I mean, she went hysterical when she saw you. Well, I don't know why. Well, because you were there. 
Saturday? No, I wasn't there Saturday. Well, I mean, I would drop you off. I don't know why Chris would her, say that. Her identifying you. Okay. I don't know why they'd say that because you know if you asked Bubba, I was at the house. Yeah, but did you forget about I me? Mean, maybe, maybe you forgot about Saturday. We're just making sure that we're trying to go back through a timeline and making sure that you remember Saturday because you were there Saturday. Despite Jeff's denials and insistence that he had nothing to do with the murder, the noose around his neck got tighter and tighter as agents pressured him to confess. Jeff was already in the county jail. He had turned himself in on a violation of a probation charge relating to a DUI. Uh, did you go in there and try to kill him? Let me ask you, did you go in there with an intent to kill him? I never went over to Did you go Dick. in there with intent to kill him? I never went over to Dick's house on Saturday. I was did there on the 13th with him. Did you go over with intention to kill Dick? I never went over there to Tick's house on Saturday. That's not what I'm asking you. Listen to the question I'm asking you. Did you go to Tick's house with intentions to kill Dick? I never went over to Dick's house. I have a question. Yes or no? How can I answer that question? I wasn't over at his house on Saturday. The case was about to get worse for Jeff. Worse and then much worse. Some DNA was recovered from under one of Dick Crandall's fingernails. After amplification and testing by the crime lab, there was not enough DNA to come up with a full DNA profile, but there was something curious at one of the markers. Interestingly enough, one of the markers had a unique feature to it. Right. And Dr. Daniels was really taken with this feature. He had never seen it during the course of his uh, career. And he said that particular feature, although we didn't have all 13 um, uh, markers that that particular feature in, in his mind uh, would just slam the door uh, because everyone he had that particular feature at that particular marker. That was prosecutor Rob Parker, now retired, explaining that this unique feature at one of the markers made it highly likely that the DNA belonged to Jeff. At the very least, it couldn't exclude him. It seemed like the police had their man. Jeff, though, continued to deny he had anything to do with Dick's murder, even as homicide agents continuously ramped up the pressure. Quit your lying. I'm not lying. There you are. You're sitting here bullshitting me. You're lying to me. You're trying to piss on my back because it's raining. And that ain't the way it is. Quit the lying. Quit the bullshitting. Be a man. Stand up for once in your life and tell the truth about what happened. For once in your life, tell the truth. No, you have You sit here bullshitting. You continue to lie. Lie, lie, lie. Continue. Tell the truth to us. Be a man. Show your family, show your kids that you're a man. Oh, show my kids that I'm a killer when I'm Show not. your kids that you know that what's right. Yeah, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does. But you got to be man enough to stand up and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I have problems. Drugs made me do it. Dick brought it on his own self. Dick's an asshole. Whatever. But if you didn't go out there and cold-blooded kill them, you need to tell the truth and quit living this damn lie and keep pissing on my leg because I ain't buying it. I ain't stupid. I've done this a long time. I ain't buying it. A judge and jury's not going to buy it. Tell the truth. I'm telling the truth. No, you're not. Continue that lie. Continue that lie. I want you to. Continue that lie. I want you to continue that lie. I've told you the truth. Because it's going to come back to haunt you. That lie will come back to haunt you. I've told you the truth. No, you haven't. I I have. No, you just continue to bullshit and bullshit and lie. Continue that lie. We'll see how far it carries your life. The time has come to be a man and quit bullshitting people. The bullshitting is over. Be a man for once in your life. I am being a man. No, you're not. You're being a punk. You're sitting here. I'm being a punk now? Yeah, you are. You're lying. 
Conan and Lion. You guys are sitting there trying to shove me. I'm into trying to get you to tell the truth for once in your life. You're a great example. Feel truth for once in your life. I didn't do it. Now, remember just a little bit ago when I said it got worse and then much worse? I recently read a book by Haruki Murakami that had a line I will never forget. It said something like, just when I thought things couldn't get worse, I realized that hell has no bottom. And Jeffrey Charles Abramaski was about to learn that. Remember, he was in the county jail. Well, the guy that was sharing a cell with Jeff was a man by the name of Robert Ohala. And Robert claimed that Jeff confessed the entire crime to him. Robert asked to speak with the police. I said he got an argument. And uh, he really didn't tell me too much what the argument was about, but I believe it was about the guy thought he took the prescriptions. And uh, what was the argument at? In the living room, right, right before you go into the kitchen. And they got to an argument. Yeah, he got the argument, and uh, and he needed some dope because he was dope sick. And uh, next thing you know, he changed into Count Dracula, man, and Frankenstein threw his hands a couple times, started jumping onto cement. My- Ohala went on in detail about the case and how Jeff killed Dick. So four years later, after continuances and pretrial hearings and investigations, Jeff goes on trial for murder. And really, for the state, it's a slam dunk. They have Jeff's DNA. They've got the incident in Orlando where Dick ditched Jeff, and that seemed to be the spark that ignited his anger. Jeff's alibi fell apart. Prosecutors have a witness who puts Jeff at the scene, another who claims he drove Jeff to the trailer park, and a jailhouse informant. They also have one of Dick's ex-girlfriends. Now she takes the witness stand and really nails Jeff. She says that she saw Jeff the Friday before the murder, and, well, this is what she says happened. He said, um, in a laughing matter, he, he said that uh, he, was gonna, he was gonna rob Mr. Crandall that weekend. He wasn't gonna hurt him or anything, but he was gonna rob him and, uh, take all his oxycontins and his money and but he wasn't gonna hurt him and he laughed about it and of course we laughed about it too we didn't take him serious and then we told mr crandall the jury is not even out for three hours before coming back into the courtroom and pronouncing jeff guilty of murder jeff's daughter jamie who was in high school at the time attended every day of the trial she will remember that moment for as long as she lives. When the jury, you know, said guilty, you know, what was his face like? Like you were. I, I saw him standing forward, but I could just see his like his body just kind of like he wanted to fall on the floor. I mean, like just disappear. I just, I really, we did not imagine. I had bought, I bought a bunch of snacks and candies and cookies and stuff for him that you know he hadn't got to have and he told me what he wanted and I brought it with me because we didn't think there was any way that these people could really believe that he would do this and we thought he was coming home. Judge Tanya Rainwater would later sentence Jeff to life in prison. Case solved. (laughs) Ah, not so fast. This is murder on the Space Coast after all. And if you've listened to our previous seasons, you know that we're not your typical true crime podcast. This is a podcast about justice. Or perhaps, more precisely, injustice. To this day, Jeff, serving life in prison, maintains his innocence. I've never killed anybody. So you didn't kill Courtney? No. Courtney Cranley? Absolutely not, no. What has it been like for you all these years being in here? When I first got charged with this crime, and they put me back in 300 back there with those guys. I've never been in trouble. Never, I had, you know how many points? I had zero points on my record. I go back there, right? 
I'm in it with these evil people. It was the most stressful thing I've ever been through in my life. I got teeth knocked out. I fought for my life in there. They actually tried to get me murdered in here. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. Everybody in prison says they're innocent, right? And trust me, I get letters from inmates all the time. But hold on. There are some things you should know. Some things that might leave you feeling frustrated and confused, and maybe even angry. Some things that might leave you feeling a little like Jeff does now, in his 15th year in prison, insisting, I did not do this. I did not kill Dick. Some of these things I'll be telling you this season, the jury that convicted Jeff did know, and they chose to disregard. They believed the prosecutor's version. Only you can judge whether you do too. But other things you'll hear this season, the jury never heard. What if I told you that Jeff's trace DNA wasn't the only DNA found at the crime scene? What if I told you that Dick Crandall was found clutching a snarl of hair that did not belong to Jeff? What if I told you blood was found in the bathroom sink that didn't belong to Jeff? What if I told you that police recovered in Alabama a very special, unique piece of jewelry given to Dick by his daughter? Not only did they recover it, but they recovered it in the possession of someone you'll hear an awful lot more about. What if I told you that you'll hear the lead investigator in this case, the one who tried so hard to get Jeff to confess, lie on the stand? Yes, lie. For the prosecutor's theory to work, Dick must have been killed on Saturday. After all, that's when Jeff's friend, Chris Vasquez, says he dropped him off at Dick's trailer park, and Valeria David, the woman who found the body, also puts Jeff there. But what if I told you that other witnesses put Dick somewhere else at the same time Valeria says he was at the trailer with Jeff? The same morning, Chris says he dropped Jeff off. That's right, two separate witnesses whom the jury never heard from. The medical examiner was unable to give an estimated time of death in this case. The ME did say that there were not really any signs of decomposition. And that would be very odd if Dick was killed Saturday and lay in a trailer until Monday morning with the temperature in his trailer at 82 degrees. So do we even know for sure that Dick died on Saturday? And was Jeff even the most obvious suspect? Did other people have reasons to want to seek vengeance on Dick? Did they have airtight alibis? How much did police really look at them? Do their own stories hold up? What if I told you that Jeff's first trial ended in a mistrial because a key witness refused to testify for the state? What if I told you another would-be witness for the state wound up killing himself? After I tell you all that, you decide. Is the right person in prison for savagely beating Dick Crandall to death? This is Season 4 of Murder on the Space Coast, Where Justice Lies. Now, before we get to that, he said that there was a car accident. Yes. How, how old were you when that happened? I was in the fourth grade, I believe. So you remember it then? Yes, I remember it very well. I think he said, what did he say, oh man, I'm okay. I mean, I threatened to kill him, and I, because he threatened to kill my dog, and I said, if you kill my dog, I'll, I'll kill you too. I said that once. That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. 
For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.